Today's episode is brought to you by Curve, a card and digital wallet service. You'll be hearing more about Curve later on, but for now, let's get into today's interview. I am joined once again by Kemen Linswain, uh, also known as DC Analyst. Kemen, welcome to Forward Guidance. Hey, Jack. Uh, thanks first. Uh, thanks for having me back. It's 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 great to talk again. And yeah, um, I see a lot a lot going on in the markets. Kind of Fed meeting yesterday uh, as as we're recording here. So uh, yeah, excited to to jump in and, and talk about rates and and kind of update on everything that's happened. <laughs> Yeah, me too. So you are a polymath, not just in sort of Fed lingo, central bank lingo, but really the plumbing, the tri-party repo, the LIBOR to SOFR transition. So we're going to get uh, uh, in all of that. By the way, your day job is at a uh, crypto firm named Gauntlet. So we can talk about DeFi at the, at the very end of this episode, but uh, I want to pick your brain just about, yeah, what's been going in, in markets. Uh, what has stood out to you this year uh, in terms of the the plumbing, like in what way are the, the financial markets different? Rates, short-term rates have gone up at a tremendous amount since since the start of the year, and that's kind of the the most obvious obvious thing to everyone. But also the the um, the other thing is that uh, for the past kind of two years, 2020, 2021, the kind of short-term rate space in terms of spreads uh, was very very quiet because uh, well, their rates were. Mainly at zero, uh, there was there was a lot of a lot of cash in the in the overnight markets, a lot of cash in the sh- in the short term markets, and all the spreads were basically compressed, very low, and and not not doing much of anything. Spreads be- spreads between what and what? Um, okay, so yeah, can can get more specific there. There there are a lot of spreads. So uh, <laughs> I I think one of the most important ones we'll talk about today is probably uh, so far to Fed funds. But this applies to like sp- uh, spreads in general. So like so for two uh, euro dollars, so for two Fed funds, uh, so for two cross uh, cross currency swaps, um, commercial paper, uh, kind of term rates. Um, yeah. So for the for the past two years, I would say prior to to this year, most of that space was just very quiet. Everything was close to zero. Uh, Fed. Was was doing QE was keeping rates very low and nothing very much of interest was happening in terms of the spreads. Uh, this year, that's that's not the case. So we see now um, within kind of the the range of the Fed funds target, um, the the Fed policy target range, the the range itself is moving up, but rates are also moving within the range. So that is. That is interesting and, and important, and that's that's a change in, in the dynamic this year and makes kind of trading and what's going on with rates this year much more interesting since, well, there's, there's actually something happening. <laughs> All right. Okay. So Fed funds is what the Federal Reserve officially controls. And when they say, oh, we're hiking interest rates, we're cutting interest rates, that's what they're really talking about, even though most of the action is actually in the reverse repo, uh, which we can get into. But uh, yeah, so what is SOFR? And you said Euro dollars, that's LIBOR. And soon LIBOR will be no more. Um, yeah, so talk us through LIBOR, SOFR, and Fed funds. Fed funds stands for federal funds. Uh, SOFR, secured overnight financing yep. rate. Uh, LIBOR, London interbank overnight rate. Offer. Wait, wait. Offer. Offer rate. Offer rate. Thank you. Because when people say, oh, interest rates, I, I think rates are going up. I think rates are going down. It's 
generally these things move together, but they're not the same thing. And uh, if you really want to like acquaint yourself with the intimate details of these things, then yeah, you got, you got to know the difference. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. So um, you mentioned three different markets. So Fed funds, which is an unsecured overnight onshore market, then SOFR, which is the repo market, which is also uh, onshore, um, also overnight, but it is secured. So there's collateral involved. And then there is LIBOR, which is different in in a couple of ways. So LIBOR is offshore. It's in London. Um, it is unsecured, so there's there's no collateral involved, and it's term, so it's not it's not overnight. It's one month, three months, uh, some some period in, uh, into the future, uh, and so so these these three kind of separate money markets exist, and then there are derivatives of all of them. So so there's these these, these three markets. So we can start with the Fed funds market, I guess, which is um, the 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 official policy rate of the Fed, and that is. Um, Onshore and unsecured. So the the banks are lending to each other with no collateral um, within the, the U.S. So these are all banks that have accounts at the Fed and are, are transferring reserves, lending them to each other overnight. Um, in, in a way, this is kind of an interbank deposit system since, well, bank is loaning reserves to the other bank. That's in a way kind of the same as, as like having a deposit at the other bank. In the past, before the global financial crisis, this used to be a very big market because there, there was relatively low reserves in the banking system. The Fed's balance sheet were, was fairly small, so these, these reserves were scarce. And as like payments occurred during the day, banks needed to move them around a lot more. So they, they would blend them to each other in the Fed funds market, and, and that market was really big. Um, Nowadays, that's that's not the case. Uh, there's there's much more reserved in the banking system. The banks don't really need to redistribute them as much intraday to to uh, meet their their payment obligations. So the Fed fund market has gotten a lot smaller. It's it's still the the official uh, policy target, uh, and there there's still some daily activity, and and we can kind of go into this in more detail. Certain banks do keep their cash in this interbank unsecured market for uh, kind of regulatory reasons. Um, yeah, so that is that is mainly Fed funds. Then we can get into software. But um, to, to talk about software, I, I guess we have to talk about the, the repo market a bit more, but can pause there and, and kind of get more, um, yeah, kind of, uh, clarify more direction there. <laughs> yeah, uh, so, so when you said the... Banking system now has m- way more reserves than the banking system before the Great Financial Crisis. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but we're not talking twice as many reserves, three times as many reserves. I think it's like 30, 40, 50 times as many reserves, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the... Like the diff- way more. Yeah. So the, the difference there is, well, in, in the past, before the, the GFC, um, Reserves were also not remunerated by the Fed, so the Fed did not pay interest on reserves. So that, um, in that case, for rates to remain at like kind of a target equilibrium, reserves needed to be pretty scarce, since the natural rate that they earned was zero. Uh, and and that that means that like if if the the Fed funds rate was 
say, 3%, uh, that that 3% was entirely kind of a premium due to the scarcity of these reserves in the market. Uh, nowadays, that's, that's, not, that's not the case. They, um, the Fed remunerates reserves. So now, as of the latest rate hike, it pays... Um, 425 to 450 435, in the range. 435, right? IOR? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so for, for 35% on, on reserves. And then um, from there, uh, it's, it's it, even though like reserves are much more plentiful, the, the, the market rate of reserves is much closer to, to that value because, well, the, the Fed is already paying interest on them. Um, yeah, and this kind of get in, gets into the current role of the Fed funds market. So currently, the Fed funds market um, is mainly an arbitrage. Uh, well, actually, more detail. There's there's two parts to it, but the main part is arbitrage. So some banks, these are the the federal home loan banks, which are government sponsored, uh, do not earn interest on reserves because. Um, well, there's there's kind of various legal reasons for this, and also it's kind of pointless for the government to pay itself interest. Uh, so right, these- so, so that that means that sorry that um, they just they, they can't do reverse repo. They can't get IOER interest on excess reserves. Like, well, they, they can do they can do reverse repo actually, and they can they can participate in the repo market, but they they can't they can't earn IOER. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, okay. So they they can't do IOER, but they can. So, but why why wouldn't they just put it in the RRP? Um, well, they they can do that, and and the 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 RRP rate is a little bit lower than than IOER. Um, but usually, what they do is they they keep their their cash, their their reserves in the Fed funds market. So they just go to the Fed funds market every day and offer however much liquidity they they have or they're willing to part with overnight. Um, and they they offer it to to all of the banks, um, and and the banks. Quote them some level that is a little bit lower than IOER usually, and and that that's that's a that's a good arbitrage for the banks that are that are taking these taking this this excess cash from the FLG. Okay, okay, so thanks. So so there are three levels at the top, which would so now that the the target range for federal funds is between four point two five and five four point five zero. Yep. So you just said let's begin by uh, the effective actual Fed funds is four point three five. Interest on excess reserves might be uh, 4.4, and repo might be uh, 4.3. So it's like a, a tiered stack where uh, the home loan bank can't get to the top of the stack on interest on excess reserves. So they lend money to banks who can do it. So banks borrow at 4.35% and then deposit at 4.40%. Yep, yep, exactly. So there, there is... There's three levels, right? So there's the the RRP, which is like the lo- the, the the lowest um, level of rates it's always been since the RRP has been created. It's always been kind of the lowest uh, offered rate from from the Fed. Um, then there is the IOR rate, and then Fed funds is somewhere in the middle. So the the federal home loan banks cannot earn IOER, but they can get close-ish by uh, lending to other banks. Um, Yes, and, and uh, then then there's another level. So at the bottom is reverse repo. Well, at the real bottom is the lower effective Fed funds, Fed funds rate, and then reverse repo, uh, then Fed funds, then interest on excess reserves, then uh, actual repo rates. Again, the reverse repo rate is what the Federal Reserve pays banks for. Uh, basically, 
you can deposit or you, you can lend money to the Fed, not that the Fed needs money, and they give you that rate. Repo is if, if, if banks want to borrow money from the Fed and post their uh, collateral, the, their assets as collateral. And then above that is the uh, upper federal funds range. And then when the, you have the repo rate go above the Fed funds rate, that's when you have a liquidity crisis like you did in September 2019. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. so the, the, other, the other kind of detail here, and I guess most of these things are uh, in the, the latest post on my blog. So that is DC's chartbook.substack. Um, yeah. But as I, as I kind of went into in that, in that blog post, the, the market rates, so um, Fed funds and, and software, they are kind of not point lines, they are distributions. So there is kind of some range of rates that, that the market actually trades at. And like the, the federal funds and the software rates that are uh, reported to us as like the headline numbers are the medians of those distributions. So um, there, there is, there's a median, which is kind of the, the official, the official reference. And then around that, there is some, some dispersion of, of like actual, actual market trades. Mm-hmm. And, um, from the data, like the, the Fed, when, when it reports these rates, it, it gives us some percentiles so we can know kind of where, um, the, the extreme parts of this, of this range are. And sometimes, and sometimes the, the kind of distribution of the rate, it's the, the ranges changes. So, um, um, in, in some market conditions, there might be a skew, like there, there might be a few banks that are in the fed funds market, for example, borrowing above IOR because, um, they, they are not doing this for arbitrage. They actually just need the reserves. So they, they mm-hmm. temporarily kind of go to the Fed fund market and borrow some reserves that they're short of for uh, a little while. This is not usually kind of a reliable ongoing funding for, for banks, but um, there are some banks that borrow in the Fed funds market for real funding needs. And that, that affects the distribution of, of the federal funds rate. And that, that causes kind of this, uh, this bimodal behavior of it where there are some banks that are doing one thing and some banks that are doing something else. So that's, that's another kind of detail within the kind of behavior of market rates within the Fed's kind of policy range. <laughs> okay. Right. And so the repo rate and both the reverse repo rate, they are, they both SOFR rates. So, um, <laughs> this is, this is another, another, thing that, that kind of go, go, uh, go over in the blog post. So the, the, the repo market is actually made up of many different parts and not all of these parts are entirely observable. So um, there are certain institutions uh, within the repo market, which are kind of very large and have, have a huge market share. So namely that is uh, BNY Mellon as a tri-party agent and uh, the Fixed Income Clearing Corporation as a clearinghouse. So they provide, um, BNY Mellon provides kind of custody and like collateral mo- monitoring for repo participants. Um, the Fixed Income Clearing Corporation provides uh, like netting of transactions and central clearing. And all of the repos that go through those two venues are more or less observable. We can see the data on them. The Fed reports statistics. Uh, but like besides that, the repo market is very decentralized to some extent, and we we can't entirely know what's going on. So this might be just 
uh, at, at a small hedge fund going to a dealer and saying, oh, I, I want to do an, an OTC repo trade. And they they talk through a Bloomberg chat or on the phone and they they do the trade on the on the dealer's books and nobody really knows about it. It's like, it's not not reported uh, that the Fed doesn't include the rate in software. Um, so, yeah, so software as 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 a repo rate includes some segments of the repo market, which are mainly processed by these two very large central counterparties. Um, but it's it's not the entirety of the repo market. And also, it does not include any transactions with the Federal Reserve. So in this in this kind of design design of reference rates, the Fed excludes any trades that it itself does. So the reverse repos coming into the into the Fed, or if the, the Fed is 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 doing repo operations, that does not those do not show up in the reference rates. Uh, other than the fact that like they um yeah they they influence the rest of the market but they they they're not like directly included in the calculation <laughs> right okay so there's a lot of buckets for the repo market there's tri uh tri-party repo which is you have a counterparty either bny mellon or the fixed income clearing uh corporation then there's bilateral repo between two parties and that's very hard to observe, pretty much impossible to, to observe. I mean, you can observe the volumes. I think you, you have a chart on that, but not much more than that. And then what is sponsored repo? Yeah. So there, there is, there, within these se several buckets, there are, so I think the, 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 the way to actually distinguish the buckets is like, what do the central counterparties do? So um, BNY Mellon is a tri-party agent. And what that means is, when if I were to do a repo with you and we were to use BNY Mellon as a tri-party agent, we would both have deposit accounts at BNY Mellon and we would um, have our, our collateral custodied by them and all of the transaction would occur on their books. It would be cash moving from my deposit account to yours or vice versa and like the collateral staying custodied by BNY Mellon, but just moving from an account in like my name to yours or, or vice versa. Um, so that's, that is the role of a tri-party agent. And then a, a clearinghouse is a little bit different. So uh, the fixed income clearing corporation is a clearinghouse. Um, it's nets trades. So there are many dealers that are, that are members of the clearinghouse and they do a lot of trades with each other during the day. And those trades, if they needed to all immediately settle at their face value would, would create like a huge amount of settlement volume. And for the sake of efficiency, the dealers that are members of these, of, of the clearing of a clearinghouse can cancel out trades that mm -hmm. offset each other. So that's kind of the two different roles of a tri-party agent versus a clearinghouse in, in repo. And within the buckets, there are, there are overlaps. There are some repos that use one, don't use the other, that use both, that, um, yeah, kind of all the different combinations are, are in there. Um, so coming back to sponsored repo. Sponsored repo is an a special program that is offered by the Fixed Income Clearing Corporation where hedge funds that are not dealers or um, that, are, that um, are not members directly of the Fixed Income Clearing Corporation can, through their dealer, 
execute netted trades um, as if basically they wow. were members. So like the, the, the hedge funds broker is effectively a member of FIC on behalf of the hedge fund they serve and nets their trades on the clear. Okay, that, that's really interesting. But then zooming out, so there's bilateral tri-party and then what's the third type with the fed where, and where is the fed what type what bucket is, is the re- reverse repo facility in so the fed actually does tri-party repos um the the when when um these facilities were set up um the the fed decided that it, it would be it would be best to kind of use the the standard infrastructure but is that is used by the rest that by large part of of the market and set up an account with BNY Mellon and um, whenever they they lend cash in in repo or drain cash from the reverse repo facility they do it through those accounts um, so that is that is a tri-party repo those do not those are not included in software or or the reference rates so those are those are um, those are I mean very much part of the market but um, yeah, not not included in, in the calculation. Hey there, I hope you're enjoying today's show. Just wanted to let you know that this episode is sponsored by Curve, a payment service that gives you power over your finances. The way it works is that Curve is an extra layer on top of your credit and debit cards that gives you additional cash back on the rewards that you're already earning. Curve Card has no foreign transaction fees and you can choose to earn your rewards in crypto. You don't have to, but you have the option. CurveCard also has a feature called Go Back in Time, where you can retroactively change the card used to buy an item after you made the purchase, up to 30 days after, actually. A key concept in finance is optionality. When you have the option to do something, but you don't have to do something, this can be very valuable in finance as well as life. And optionality is exactly what Curve gives you to do with your wallet. So check out Curve. Go to fgpodcast.link forward slash Curve to get $20 once you've downloaded the app and made your first transaction. CurveCard is powered by Hatch Bank. Terms and conditions apply. Now, let's get back to the interview. Okay, so this is, this is very complicated. Let, let, let's move on a little bit to SOFR. So it's yeah, yeah, secured, uh, but it's secured by what? General collateral is collateral that's v- like normal, as in like everyone trades in it, right? Like uh, a two-year treasury note or maybe a very on-the-run mortgage-backed security, right? Or, or Right? Yeah. So there is, there is also... So- yeah, that's that's a good point. So there's a distinction between general and specific collateral. So um, a, a, a repo is kind of lending cash against treasuries, but obviously there there are two sides of that trade. So one person gets cash and one person gets treasuries, and the the motivation for doing the trade may come from either side. Um, however, in in this case, like if someone wants to use a repo to source a treasury, they usually want a specific treasury and it's usually a fairly small number of specific treasuries so uh this this is like the comes back to the on the runs and the cheapest to deliver issues so within the treasury curve, there are a certain small number of securities that are the most traded usually those are the most recently issued or the ones that are referenced by futures contracts. So people are trading futures on treasuries and the the underlying treasuries are usually much more liquid also than 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 the rest of of the market. Right. So um, so a, a, a 10-year treasury is issued uh today on December 15th, 2022 
in a year on December 15th, 2023, it's not going to be a 10 year treasury anymore. It's going to be a nine year treasury and people buy and sell far uh, um, fewer nine-year treasuries than 10-year treasuries. 10-year treasuries is the benchmark. And if you're buying oh. treasury futures, that's what you're trading. So it's like it, it constantly moves back a day. Uh, the duration is, is, is constant. So if if CME, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, um, if, if you buy a 10-year treasury future, they're short a 10-year treasury future. So they have to hedge that with a real 10-year, right? security or someone on the other side has to and the way they that had they have to borrow it a 10-year treasury note and they don't want nine-year te- treasury notes they want 10-year treasury notes right exactly exactly yeah, yeah. great so so if and this is actually a very big part of of of, of why this this happens is people are tre- trading treasury futures and there is a certain small number of securities that are deliverable into those futures and there's even usually just one specific one that is obviously the 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 cheapest or the the most favored by the contract to be delivered so people want if if people are hedging the futures contract they want to hedge it with that bond they don't they don't really want any other bond um and and yeah and and in the repo market the way the way this is expressed is people want to borrow these securities so the most recently issued ones or the ones that are deliverable into derivatives um so the the rates on those are 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 usually different and they're they're lower if if you if you look at it from the lending cash perspective the rates on those securities are lower than 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 others because they are they are preferable and that's right and i, I just want to clarify cuz this confused me in the past so probably some people are confused you're talking about the repo rates on the treasuries, not the actual yield itself. So people talk, oh, the the two ten curve is inverted. The two year treasury, the ten year treasury, uh, two year is at four percent, three uh, ten year is at three point five percent. That's what the treasury yields. We are not talking about that. You are talking about the yield generated to borrow and lend those specific securities. So it's not tr- tr- it's not the yield curve. It's different. Yeah, exactly. So it is the the repo. Um... The repo rate and and um, the, the the kind of simple I guess simplest way to see uh, to to kind of conceptualize this is um, if the the repo the repo rates right now are around well before the the Fed meeting yesterday they were three point eight percent I don't think we've gotten the the post meeting numbers out yet but let's say there were three point eight percent if there's a, a security that is in very high demand. In the repo market, the rate against that might actually the rate to borrow cash against that security might actually be like two percent or one percent, uh, and that's just because many people want to obtain it, so they will sacrifice most of the yield on their cash in order to just get that get that specific security to use for hedging or for whatever other purpose they want it for. Um, yeah, so that is when that happens in the repo market. That's called a special. And that is the distinction between general collateral repo and specific collateral repo. So um, when um, some people just want to lend cash, they, they don't particularly care what security they're getting. And, and then that's, that's general collateral repo. This does not happen. In specific collateral repo, you see this phenomenon, which is like the divergence of certain repo rates. <laughs> so general collateral is any treasury and any agency mortgage-backed security um yeah so there is there this is uh actually kind of an interesting and weird niche of how like general collateral baskets develop um 
for the U.S. repo market, yes, it's generally any any treasury any treasury security note, bond, floating rate um, floating rate mm-hmm. note bill uh, uh, strips um, are all kind of one bucket. Then agency mortgage backs are an, a separate bucket. Um, but but yeah, these these are kind of groupings of securities that that develop over time, and I think it's just kind of vague consensus between market participants that decides these things that, um, yeah, basically the repo market decides, yeah, all of these securities are general in the sense that they're all kind of fungible between um, themselves in in repo. Yeah. And I just want to make a point, which is, you know, some people may have heard the word repo talked about 2008 and they hear the word repo talked about now. In 2008, when people talk about the repo crisis of Lehman Brothers, they can't get financing because they were repoing their, they were they were not repoing treasuries they were repoing uh private private mortgage backed securities uh, non agency mortgage backed securities cdo's equity tranches leverage loans all sorts of crap that you know that legit uh, solvent banks were lending against they say oh actually no we only we want you know, oh, this this is collateral is only worth 70 cents of the dollar oh it's only worth 60 cents of the dollar uh, and then suddenly, you know, uh, Lehman Brothers is solvent. That is not what we're talking about. That sort of market of, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, repo on non sort of pristine collateral is a shadow of what, what it once was. Now we're talking about like lending at treasuries, agency mortgage securities, which uh, are guaranteed by the government, right? Yeah. Um, and I mean, to, to some extent, repo against lower quality collateral does exist. It's not very large. Um, and yeah, and also these things change over time. So actually a really good example of this is the European sovereign debt crisis. So prior to the European sovereign debt crisis in the Euro repo market, sovereign debt was a general collateral basket. So all of those, like Italy, France, Germany, all of those sovereign bonds were considered interchangeable uh, in the repo market. And that's no longer the case. Obviously, after the the sovereign debt crisis, people realized actually these sovereign bonds are not all the same. Uh, we we cannot interchange them in 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 the repo market. If if I want um, a repo backed by German boons, that is not equivalent to a repo bar- backed by other euro sovereign debt. So yeah, these things can change over time. It 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 can reach a certain point of equilibrium, and then people realize, oh, this actually doesn't work, and and. Yeah, the baskets change. <laughs> Got a question. Yeah, so who want when people borrow securities, is it most often to short them? So, for example, uh, you know, you borrow a Greek bond because you want to short a Greek bond. Um. Well, yeah, that that's that's kind of a, a and and this this also kind of goes. Um, yeah, goes to to relative value trading. So there there are people who who might observe kind of small divergences between between securities on the yield curve and they might say oh this one's actually like a little bit too expensive this one's a little bit too cheap so i want to borrow borrow the expensive one sell it short it uh buy buy the cheap one kind of bet on converging um could also be used to hedge derivatives um so i you go long a futures contract for example and then you borrow the underlying note in repo and you short it 
But the other the other reason that people might want to borrow securities in repo is to to sell them to customers. So, like for example, a dealer gets an order from from a customer that wants this specific bond, and they might not have it in inventory. So they they go out into the repo market and say, "Oh, like who wants to lend me this bond?" Got it. But what about when they say they want the bond back? Do they have to go to the customer and you know? Um. So I mean, th- so this this actually comes to the to the chart that that, that you have on the on, on the screen here. So the there is actually um, there there's several th- so there's several things they can do. If if for example a dealer sourced bond in, in repo sold it to a customer and then they 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 need to manage that position going forward. So well they can they can buy the bond from from somewhere else. Maybe it's easier to find it on the market now and they can just buy it and and close out their 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 repo position with a different bond of of that that same issue um the other the uh the other thing they can do is is just keep rolling it so find someone else in the repo market who 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 wants to who wants to lend it to them again um and the the kind of the third the third option which uh, is kind of an extension of this is to to borrow it from the Fed. So the Fed owns a lot of uh, a lot of treasuries. It has a, a huge portfolio, and it lends those treasuries out um, through the the um, so-called Soma lending facility to to the primary dealers. And that, that, that's reverse repo facility, right? Or that's that different? Um, so that is that actually happens at the same. I think it happens at the same time as the reverse repo facility, and and it's kind of a, a closely tied program, but it's it's a little bit different. And the main difference being that the the reverse repo facility is general collateral. So if you come to the to the reverse mm-hmm. repo facility and you you give them cash, uh, um, you don't know what what collateral you're getting back versus so variable collateral, but fixed rate, unless of course the Federal Reserve changes the rate as they did yesterday. Um, yeah. Uh, at the December FOMC meeting, whereas SOMA is uh, specific collateral, but the rate moves up and down. As you can see, this is the uh, on the the repo rate for on the run two year note uh, lending rates, and it goes up and down way really close to zero basis points, and then it goes up as high as three hundred basis points in April of twenty twenty two, and as high as four hundred basis points in September October of of twenty twenty two. So what is going on here? I when looking at this chart, I was trying to place it on to Fed meetings, say, oh, people want to short a bunch of two year notes right before the Fed meeting, but it, it doesn't map on. Why why is this happening? Yeah, so actually, I've I've gotten quite a few questions on this chart, and and I can um, explain in more detail and like how 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 to construct reconstruct it actually. So. Um, yeah, the, the the what we're seeing here, and and like the the spikes on this is the the Soma lending facility is like um, is like like you mentioned not a fixed rate facility is actually an auction. So the dealers come to the Fed and they 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 bid for the the securities that they want from the Fed's portfolio, and depending on how many bids are su- submitted, like how much of the security the Fed has, and like how much the dealers how many dealers are bidding and like how much they need this security, the, the price can actually spike up pretty high. Uh, so, so that is, yeah, that is what we see in, in some of these, some of these big spikes here in that's like April. And then there was one really big one. I think that is in yeah late September. Uh, and, and what that, what, what happened there is there was, 
a lot of demand to to short these these bonds either because like they were very volatile and and there were there were relative value opportunities opening up and people people wanted to participate in the in the in the trades uh so they were they were demanding these bonds or these these two year notes from from the dealers the dealers did did not really have enough of them so they were they were going to the fed and they were they were bidding at a very high rate to to obtain these um, yeah, and that's that's what these what these kind of spikes are. And then um, at the bottom, when it's near zero, there's actually a five basis point minimum um, on this facility, so that they they can't bid below five basis points. So when it's when it's at five basis points, that basically means there's there's no demand or there's no material demand. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's interesting. Okay, so that's that is SOFR, and where within the interest rate complex again with the the ceiling sorry the floor is the uh, lower fed funds limit the ceiling is the uh, upper fed funds limit the target range that the federal reserve sets every uh, fomc meeting and sometimes it can change between fomc meetings like it did in march but that's very rare um uh why let's see okay where within that ceiling and and uh floor and again sometimes things go through the ceiling sometimes they go through the floor but where within that 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 uh floor is sofer secured overnight financing rate all right so kevin what are we looking at here where we've got sofer in pink uh fed funds in green uh the one month sofer in red and then effective fed rate in blue Overnight SOFR in black. Uh, and again, yeah, so SOFR is the overnight, but then you can have a, a three-month SOFR where it's like rolled forward, right? Yeah. So this this gets into the connection between the the money markets and the derivative markets that are based on them. So the the money markets are are um yeah, generally between these these big institutions lending um, lending cash and securities to each other, but these these rates also kind of affect the 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 economy as a whole and people broader participants in the market who are are not maybe not even institutions need ways to to hedge against them. So that means we we um, as there's a demand for for derivatives. Um, so the the chart where well, the chart shows uh, the 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 overnight rates, so the Fed funds rate and SOFR, and then some of the derivative indices that have futures contracts trading on them. Actually, so each one of these lines, or the um, the red, uh, green, and pink lines, are actually tradable. So you can you can go to the to the CME and, for example, buy Fed fund futures. They actually settle to um, the pink are. Uh, that's the green line. The way this works are, are with with averaging. So if you're 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 looking for a, a derivative contract, you don't you don't want a derivative contract on suffer for a single day. For example, today you generally want it over a few months, which is like oh, I'm going to keep my cash in a mar- money market fund, and that money market fund yields a rate that is approximately close to suffer. So I want to hedge the interest that I'll earn with a futures contract. Um, and, and, and that, um, the most common terms are three months and, and, and one month. Uh, so, um, those are just like generally the, 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 I guess, 
um, time intervals that that you're averaging or compounding rates over when when you're trading in these in these derivative markets. And the 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 final thing to note here, I guess, is that these these derivative indices are trailing, so they are backwards looking as software and the federal funds rate are updated. Um, the the um, the derivative indices lag behind. And that is in contrast to, for example, something like a three-month T-bill rate, which is forward-looking. It is like the maturity of the T-bill or, for example, three-month LIBOR is in the future. So you are you are looking at a, at a forward term rate versus this. these are backward-looking. So that is an interesting kind of change. Really? Why are they backward-looking? You can't. If I want to enter into a three-month SOFR contract, it's got to be a forward thing, right? Um, well, yes. So that is, that, that is actually a very, a very tough question for, for the, for the, for the LIBOR transition, which is usually as loan users, if you want to borrow money, you want to borrow money uh, based upon a future rate. But since, um, since we, we don't know what the software rate in the future is going to be yet, it's, it's not really possible to settle derivatives against that future rate, or or at least it needs to be better defined in order to settle derivatives off of it. So the the futures on the CME are the 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 numbers that they use are the trailing numbers versus lo- actual loan borrowers who want to use SOFR might want to use a forward looking value. So that introduces the concept of term SOFR, which is kind of a synthetic forward rate and also kind of SOFR swaps and other kind of forms of forward-looking SOFR derivatives that can be created to kind of try to approximate a forward term structure. But naturally, SOFR and, and the federal funds rate do not have that property. So that's, that's, that's an important nuance. <laughs> the, a lot of what you said... Uh, I'm happy because it's a natural transition to a topic of the, the euro dollar transition uh, from LIBOR to SOFR. LIBOR is a benchmark rate that so many things are pegged against. Pretty much everything is currently pegged against. Uh, it has been for, for many years. There was a scandal where it was revealed that bankers were sort of cheating and scamming the LIBOR thing. So there's this commission set forward to, okay, actually we'll have it be a new thing. It won't be LIBOR, it will be SOFR. That transition is set to happen early next year, or I, I want to hear all about it. The the LIBOR transition, and, and I, I don't I don't think this is finalized yet, but there's like a fairly good plan for it, is going to happen in mid-April of, of next year. And that is because they, um, the library rate has been deprecated and they're going to stop publishing it. So all of the, all of the futures that are, are based on, on LIBOR need a new, a new rate to, to, to base off of. And that's going to be software. So basically at some point in mid April of next year, the CME is going to take all open euro dollar positions and convert them into three month software positions with some adjustments that I think they're still kind of in the process of working out. Um, and yeah, eventually, uh, basically, or after that, all of those positions will be software positions and the, the kind of official three months or, or the, the, the only really three months kind of short term interest rate contract for the US will be the software contract. Um, so that's, that's, that's a very, that's going to be a very big event for the market. People are, are, 
already uh, or fairly well prepared, I would say. Like uh, there have been various moves to encourage people to start using software already and to transfer positions early before the before the transition happens to kind of minimize the shock of that. Um, but yeah, that's that's definitely going to be something to watch over this spring as it gets as it gets closer. Like first of all, like what the final details of like the conversion adjustments are going to be, and then yeah, um, like how big the how big the conversion is actually going to be when when it happens, and how much is going to be converted earlier just by people wanting to move over on their own. <laughs> Right, yeah, and, and how different are Sofer and LIBOR? LIBOR is offshore, so uh, officially not within the, the remit of the Federal Reserve, and, and really not within the remit un unless you know there's a the Fed can extend swap lines, but that's really only in a crisis situation. Um, uh, and so, so, uh, d so LIBOR, tr LIBOR is more risky, right, because it's lending on an unsecured basis uh, as opposed to offshore, you know. Uh, we, we saw what happened offshore with the Bahamas. I'm, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, uh, and so SOFR um, is secured. LIBOR is not. So LIBOR is more risky. So does LIBOR trade at a premium, meaning LIBOR rates are higher? Yep. Yeah. So and I guess this is the kind of way to, to, to think about kind of between LIBOR and, and SOFR. Because, well, in the, in the past, maybe LIBOR was a more active market, but now there's relatively little um, actual uh, borrowing or intrabank borrowing and lending in London at the LIBOR rate. Like it's yeah, yeah. So sorry. So this blows my mind. Okay, so Sofer is used a ton in the spot market of oh, overnight I'm gonna borrow Treasury, I'm gonna borrow cash, I'll post my Treasury's collateral, but the futures market does not exist yet, or or it's very nascent. Uh, whereas LIBOR, the futures market is huge. It's the biggest market in the world, but the actual spot market of people buying and selling is kind of a dead market. It's tiny. And I mean, to kind of update that to, to a certain extent, uh, I would say the futures markets between LIBOR and software now are more equally sized. Like software futures have gotten a lot bigger just recently over like the last couple of months to a year. And now they're like at a comparable size to the euro dollar market. But yeah, up until kind of earlier this year, that was definitely true. Like the, the software spot market was very big. The futures market was very tiny and euro dollar was the other way around. Yeah. Right. Okay. Sorry. I, I got confused because earlier you said that three months offer refers to a past and you can't, you can't do a future. Um. Well, yes, yes. So that is that is uh, an important point. So, um, th and that that is actually um, a little bit confusing when when you look at how the futures are are named. So, for example, the euro dollar December twenty twenty two contract um, it expires in December of twenty twenty two, right? Um, because yeah, whatever the LIBOR rate is at at the at the expiry date. They will just take that rate and they will mark the mark the contract to it. However, the software contract for December of 2022 actually expires in March of next year. And that is because it covers the same period of time. So LIBOR, the LIBOR contracts covers the, the the rate is effective between December and March, and the same thing for the for the for the software contract, but the software contract matures at the end of that period. So they have to wait all the way until March to get all the all the software data in 
And then at the end of that only, the, the contract matures. So there is, they're both called December contract, but there's that, they, there's a three month offset always between Eurodollar and, 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 and software. Uh, so yeah, and, and that's, that's part of the conversion too. When, when the contracts are converted, they are converted to a contract that matures at a different time. So that's, <laughs> The, that's it's it's going to be really tricky for the for the for the CME to get this exactly right, but they're working on it. Yeah, <laughs> is this is probably a little bit before both of our times, Kevin? But what about the fear that uh, you know, twenty two years ago, as soon as it went to two, the year two thousand, computers would just stop because they didn't know how to do something? Is is there are there f- similar fears that the library software transition, like the financial markets, will just stop? Um, I mean, I think there's always like something like that like you could say it's like a very tail risk that just something goes horribly wrong um and um yeah the the market basically breaks uh the next day but uh well I, i'm sure they're taking they're doing a few things to 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 mitigate that the one thing is like they're doing the transition over over the weekend so the way the way this is going to work is like uh um, the euro dollar contracts will close at the market close on Friday, and then they will do work over the weekend. And when it reopens on Monday, they should all be software futures going forward after that. That's going to be a busy weekend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, and I mean, this there's there's always this kind of kind of risk, and it's kind of the same thing people were were talking about with like the Ethereum merge, where like yeah, there's this yeah. worry that like the whole thing might just go horribly wrong, but it didn't. And like, fingers crossed, the euro dollar transition will similarly be uneventful. <laughs> but just my own personal curiosity, are Fed funds futures, which are by far the contracts that I'm most familiar with, are, are they also uh, three months in advance or no? So Fed funds futures contracts are monthly. So yeah, um, they're... they're um, yeah, and that's kind of the difference between the two tenors. So there's the one-month tenor and the three-month tenor. There's also a software contract in the one-month tenor, which is like basically exactly the same as the Fed funds contract, but it's software, which is actually mm-hmm. very convenient because you can you can trade the spreads between them. But yes, the these these one-month contracts are also tra- are also kind of trailing. They um, so for example the the December. Fed funds and the December software contracts, um, they will mature at the end of this month and they reference the the rates that already occurred, right? <laughs> okay, that makes sense. Um, yeah, so now let's look just at the spread between EFR, effective Fed funds rate, and SOFR. Uh, before 2020, let's see, what does it mean? SOFR was above EFR, whereas now EFR is higher than SOFR. Why would uh yeah, why is that the case? I guess let's see. Effort is an unsecured rate, SOFR is secured, so it would make sense for effort to be higher than SOFR. So I guess my question is, why was effort ever lower than SOFR? Uh, yeah, so that's that's a and, and this is this this I guess this chart was kind of the, the big uh um center of the post and and um yeah what, what I, you kind of what, what i kind of wanted to highlight here is the whole thing really depends on the balance between cash and and collateral in the system so the 
these are all rates between kind of very there's there's not really much material credit risk here all of these all of these dealers all of these banks that participate in these markets are extremely well capitalized and 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 stable so the the primary difference is the presence or the absence of collateral and the the way that affects the 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 market is um when cash is when when cash is very plentiful and and collateral is 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 scarce um uh, the, the the federal funds rate is relatively higher since it's it's less affected by that condition since the federal funds market is mostly banks doing this arbitrage that that we talked about earlier they do not really feel the the effects of the cash versus collateral balance. Meanwhile, in the in the in the repo market, this this has a very real effect. Like if there's if there's a lot of cash, there are certain kind of regulatory limits to 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 banks and 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 dealers balance sheets. So they might not want all of that cash. They they offer it at a low rate. So this the software rate is much more sensitive to to this to this balance versus the federal funds rate since a lot more of it is made up of arbitrage is less sensitive. So that's that's the main thing that is moving this this chart is just like the balance of the relative scarcity of cash and collateral. And since wait wait sorry so it now is there more cash or so the F or so for it going from positive to to from negative to positive and then going up even though it's only only 5 basis points does that mean that too much cash or too much collateral? So this, so the way the way it is on the chart right now, the positive values mean generally a, a glut of cash. So that means there's there's a lot of cash. Software is low because people are are lending that cash into the repo market and and sacrificing uh, the rate, like accepting a lower rate. While in the Fed funds market, it is kind of more isolated from all that since the Fed mar- funds market is small and is mostly these arbitrage. Are, are this arbitrage trades going on? So the the Fed funds market is just less affected, and that's that's what's that's what's going on here. <laughs> the final thing to note about this chart is um, this is actually a tradable spread. So this is the the thirty day average spread between um, the Fed funds rate and software, and you could actually trade this if you go into the futures market and you um, you you you. Buy one of the futures and sell the other. You get exposure to this line directly. So this is actually not just kind of a theoretical thing. This is actually something you can get access to through a tradable product. And if you kind of have some views as to like where repo rates are going and like where the balance of cash and collateral is going to be in the system, yeah, you can you can express that view and you can you can try to make money trading this. <laughs> uh. Right. And so just to give people so uh, right now, that's that spread is at just below five basis points. Let's call that five basis points. One percent is is uh, 100 basis points. So if you put a thousand dollars into this trade uh, over the course of a year, you would get 50 cents. So per day, you would get 50 divided by 365 or I don't know, maybe it's fewer days, whatever. Uh, so you get way less than a penny. So so this is a you have to have a lot of balance sheet to, to make money doing this. <laughs> Yes. Yes. So if you if you were going to kind of arbitrage it directly, that's 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 very costly for you. The the if you are going to do it in the futures market, yeah, then like you're effectively like levered up. So yeah, you hit you you have like leverage against the spread. But yeah, if you're going to 
for for practical purposes, it's it's not really all that meaningful. It's a few basis points. It's if if you have if you're a cash investor, you're not you're not really going to know the difference between EFFR and 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 so forth. <laughs> And Kevin, what is an overnight index swap, sometimes called OIS, and what is the spread between FRA and OIS? What does that mean? Yeah, so um, an overnight in- index swap is just a, a swap based off of an overnight rate, so off of EFFR or or SOFR. Um, either of those two have OIS traded off of them. And, and that just means, yeah, basically uh, a, a contract between two counterparties, one of them pays the, the fixed rate, one of them pays the, the floating rate as it changes, and the market expectations of like the future value of the, the overnight rate determine the, the price of the swap. Um, so that's, that's OIS. And then what is uh, FRA OIS is... There are well forward forward rate agreements, which are a, a, a type of swap, really, but they are they are based on on LIBOR. Um, so basically, FRA OIS is another way of saying the Fed funds or software spread versus LIBOR. So yeah, that's that's a measure of credit risk. That's a measure of kind of liquidity in the banking system, and it's yeah, um, it's an important thing to to look at and and. Um, Correlated with like euro dollar futures, also, so it has it's a spread that has like a lot of knock on effects everywhere. <laughs> right, thanks, and that's similar, not the same, but similar to the TED spread, uh, the spread between euro dollar rate or LIBOR and Treasuries, and which is amazing. We've talked all about interest rates, we haven't really talked about Treasuries at all. So, where within the rate complex is Treasuries? You know, securities of the in this case U.S. government, and yeah, the chart we're showing now shows the SOFR swaps curve. Uh, over the U.S. Treasury uh, curve in in red, and yeah, what does it mean when a, a uh, you know the the ten year SOFR swap is below the U.S. Treasury? A perhaps it's a uh, uh, you know unsophisticated interpretation, but you know here it is that wait why why who should be able to borrow money at a lower rate than the U.S. government? That doesn't make sense. The government is like the the the, the should be number one, right? Yeah, so there there are um, there are kind of various reasons for this, and um, and this is called this is kind of a phenomenon called negative swap spreads. So the spread between swaps and treasuries um, is is called the swap spread, and there there is there there are like various arguments why treasuries should be lower. Namely, as as you mentioned, like the U.S. government is risk free, and everyone should want to led to the US government at the lowest possible rates. Um, the the kind of the other, I guess, argument to this is that they should be about the same. If, if you were just coming at this from a theoretical point of view, is like, oh, the the swaps curve is the forward expectation of overnight rates. And then um, the treasury curve should more or less line up with that. So, so swap spread should be low to zero. But in, in reality, it is just a market rate and it depends on like the issuance of the treasury and like what buyers are actually there and willing to bid for it. And, and there are, are different things that affect that. So now actually swap spreads, since when this, this graph happened, uh, the swap spreads have actually gotten wider in the, uh, as you mentioned, the kind of confusing direction of treasury yields being higher. And that is that is 
or a reason I, I, I believe that that might be so is because of the, the inversion, which is that short-term treasury rates are just so attractive that uh, investors are, are not really uh, as interested in, in term rates. And that means that kind of term treasuries are kind of trading at this somewhat paradoxical discount to swaps. Um, I understood every single word that you just said, but I didn't really get the point. Oh, so I guess the point yeah. is about the about the inversion, right? Yeah, you know, I, yeah, yeah, I, I get that, but is I, I really don't understand like the the significance of these two rates. Is is the difference between them? Is that the term premium? Well, it's the the the, the difference is called the is the swap spread, but yes, it's 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 related to the term premium. So that the term premium kind of depending on what your model is, uh, there there are various ways of thinking about the relationship between the swap spread and the term premium. But I guess kind of the most simple kind of TLDR explanation of this of the of what the inversion has to do with uh, the spread is. As, as the curve gets more inverted, dealers have to buy more of the longer term bonds. Since like real investors don't necessarily want to buy them, they are being absorbed by dealers. And since dealers fund in the short term mainly, their forward kind of cost of capital is the swaps curve or like the expectation of future interest rates. So in order for dealers to absorb these treasuries, they need to be offered a premium to their cost of funding effectively. And that's that's one kind of oversimplified but possible way of thinking about why this happens. <laughs> ah, okay. That that makes sense. So then what's the term premium? Um well, the, t the term premium, and some people will say like the term premium is just kind of a theoretical number. But yeah, the term premium is supposed to be another another um, um, way to express this, which is based on just the treasury curve, which is like the expected yield on rolling, for example, a one-year treasury bill 10 times versus buying a 10-year treasury bond. Yes. Okay, but ro rolling it based on the forward rate of the treasury, right? Um, well, yes, it's kind of the expected rate of, of rolling it. And like the, the term premium is not a directly observable quantity. It's like something that you have to kind of estimate from regressions as to like what the expected rate of like rolling something is versus buying the term rate. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, Kevin, this interview is going to air a week or two after we're filming it, and we're filming this on December 15th, the day after the FOMC meeting. So I'm actually really glad that we talked about evergreen topics that, you know, hopefully will have as much value to, to people listening a year from now as much as they, they do now, uh, unlike if we had just talked about the Fed meeting on December 14th, which sort of, you know, wanes in importance over time. Uh, but real quick, what, I mean, what were your thoughts? And, and what, what, what do you what do you what do you think about uh, how high the, the Federal Reserve can, can hike now? Yeah, so I mean, in terms of the the headline result, I guess the fifty basis point hike was pretty much as expected. Like what the market was pricing in, I, I don't think anyone was was really surprised by that. The more surprising thing, and the thing that I was like watching in in, in more detail, is the the expectations for the end of twenty twenty three. 
So I think a lot of people are also commenting on this. The the Fed came out with a new dot plot and you uh, kind of set of, of rate projections and they, they were pretty ambitious for the for the end of 2023. They they can, I think the median FOMC member, don't quote me on this, but I think it's above five percent for the end of twenty three. Five point one, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, and and sorry, at the end of so Fed was implying uh, five point one from the dot plot. At the end of yesterday, uh after the day of FOMC the market was implying about like 4.8 by then. And now it's, it's 4.9. Uh, although honestly, yeah, by the end of December, 2023, it's still actually 4.5. I was talking about the terminal rate. Um, but yeah, now it's 4.5. So there's like still a 60 basis point difference. Uh, and the, I guess the sort of easy interpretation is the market doesn't believe the Fed. Yeah. And I mean, that is, I think that is like, Something that will definitely evolve as as next year goes on, but I I, I was I, I definitely agree with you here, and and was 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 watching this closely. Is like yeah, the futures market is definitely to some extent, or at least if you take it at face value, fading the, the Fed. It's saying that yeah, that we don't think rates will be that high at the end of next year, and in the options market, you can even see this like more vividly expressed. Like if you look at um, for December, um, December, uh, 2023, if you look at like a call spread that targets, uh, 2% to like 1.5% on the federal funds rate, which is like absurdly below what they projected to be like that call spread is not necessarily cheap. Like you're paying 10% or, or something of, of the max payout for that. It's like it, yeah. the market does not think like, 1.5 to 2 percent in the end of 2023 is like an impossible event it's like it's yeah. it's being somewhat priced in and i think it's it's going to be interesting to see if that evolves and if like the probabilities start shifting more towards oh yeah like the, the fed is 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 going to to cut by the end of 2023 they they um Obviously, um, in in uh, their forward guidance, have said this they 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 will not do this. But yeah, the market is assigning like some non-zero probability that they um, they change their mind at some point. <laughs> yes, and cutting to one point five percent by the end of twenty twenty three, that's not just a soft landing. That is like you know a doomsday scenario, a, a severe recession that says, oh wow, the Fed says we tightened way too much. We are easing. You know that that's a something bad would have to happen for that to happen. And you're saying that that probability is being weighted somewhat highly by the market. So the market is, uh, you know, kind of, uh, they, they, I, they, they, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the market that definitely doesn't seem it say it, see it as in any sense likely, but I would say like likelier than the fed. Like if, if you ask the fed, yeah. what is the chance that y'all are at 1.5% next year or at the end of next year, they say no chance. Uh, and, and says, like, more more likely than a, a normal distribution would suggest. Yeah, yeah. skew. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Um. So, so Kevin, uh, it's been great getting you on talking about all this stuff. You know, I am someone who, uh, you know, talks about these things pretty regularly, and it's you know, I, I'm I'm getting that feeling of a, of a headache when you just have so much information coming to you that you don't understand, and uh, so yeah, you 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 think about these things at a really high level, and I, you know. I hope uh, you know my my audience really really appreciates how how, how rare this is. Um, very impressive, especially given how young you are. Um, probably you know similar to my age. Um, you are into crypto though too. Okay, so that's interesting. Uh, you actually work at a crypto firm now. What uh, drew you to crypto? You can answer that question. You could also answer 
what are the interesting parallels you see between crypto? Like, are there spreads? Oh, the Ethereum's borrowing spread versus the Bitcoin borrowing spread. That tells me X, Y, Z about the market in the same way that the SOFR effort spread or the TED spread or the uh, forward rate agreement OIS spread tells me ABC about the market. Yeah. So actually, this is, this is a great to talk about. And um, um, good, good to good to update. So um, since we last talked, I, I started a new job at Gauntlet. We are a risk management company for DeFi. We provide kind of risk management uh, services, uh, advisory for many of the biggest lending protocols in DeFi. And um, I think, well, things that, that attracted me to, to this uh, to the shop is um, a, a lot of a lot of innovation. Like obviously, there is there, um, DeFi has did not exist a couple of years ago. And now there's, there's a lot of lending and trading that you can do. That's, that's very interesting. But another thing is, and I think this will be kind of very important in the next development cycle of, of uh, DeFi and the crypto markets in general is interest rates. Like DeFi has interest rates. Um, if you go to any of the big lending protocols like Compound, Aave, so on, they will quote you interest rates and and they need they need models to, to determine this. So actually one of the things we've developed recently at Gauntlet is models to to help optimize this, to manage risk, to uh, basically tell protocols where they should set their rates uh, in order to optimize the functioning of their markets. So I think there's a ton of work left uh, still to be done there. Like interest rates in DeFi are still very, very early days. And yeah, I'm, I'm kind of excited to Keep doing this and and maybe uh, come back to talk about it if 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 you'd like. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Okay, so uh, why is there yield in crypto? Here's the here's the one thing I understand about like I fully understand about yield in crypto is in a bull market people want to borrow dollars so that they can buy more Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever. So they want to be leveraged long, so they borrow stable coins, which are like dollars, but crypto versions of dollars. Um, and so, uh, hence, the d- demand to borrow stablecoins would be high. Therefore, y- y- yields on stablecoins would be higher than a, a treasury bill or something. So y- you can get an 8% yield on a, a-, a stablecoin uh, because everyone wants to get u- uber long in a bull market. Now, is that 8%? You know, uh, if treasuries are at 0 or at 1% and stablecoins are at 8%, there's a reason for that. There's, there's a risk, you know, both in terms of the stablecoin itself, the protocol, as well as credit risk, but that makes sense to me why the yield would be so high. But why would a why would there be yield on Bitcoin other than for people to short Bitcoin? It seems like in a bear market, the only demand for people to borrow Bitcoin to short Bitcoin would be in a bear market. Yeah. And I mean, this this is like, um, to some extent, also what we've, we've observed throughout DeFi is like, um, there are certain sources of yield that I you could call more or less consistent, which is like, for example, staking yield. So for example, if you stake in a, in a proof of stake kind of system, if you, for example, stake um, Solana and you, you're, you're providing your assets to provide security to the network, you are compensated for that in some way. Um, but there are also other forms of yield, which are more based on fees. So that, that would be, for example, if you are providing liquidity at like a decentralized exchange and, and these are, these are very different, right? So there is, there are, there's a different risk profile and there's like different variability to this. So I think another part that is very important here and as like, um, 
interest rates in DeFi kind of like develop further is like actually developing a clear um, classification as to like, okay, these yields are actually comparable. So for example, staking to staking is comparable versus like liquidity provision is like actually a different thing. And like this, these yields are, are sourced in different ways, right? <laughs> Effectively. Okay. Yeah. So staking is something that I don't really understand because you, it's not a financial understanding. It's a technological understanding, but it, it so that there, there's no real to me analog of staking in, um, in, in TradFi, uh, but, I, or maybe I, go ahead, go ahead, please. I would say to some extent, like it, within TradFi, within tech US, treasuries are the analog of staking. When you, uh, stake a proof of stake coin, you are locking your assets to provide security to the network effectively. Oh. And when you buy a U.S. Treasury, you are locking your dollars to provide money to the U.S. government. Not a perfect analogy, but more or less. <laughs> That's a really good analogy. I did, I did not uh, think of that. Uh, but there are some some more uh, uh, um, analogies that, that fit even closer than that, such as you know, borrowing stable coins to buy Bitcoin is the same as borrowing dollars to buy Apple. Likewise, borrowing... Uh, Tesla to, to, to short it, you borrow something you don't have and then you sell it and then you book the profit hoping that you can buy it back at a lower price. You could do that with Bitcoin, borrow Bitcoin, sell it, you know, it's the exact same thing. And, and that demand and supply uh, affects the, the yield on things. So, you know, uh, Kevin, what I feel like at the scene of the crime of the this year's bear market in crypto is yield, okay? Because at the tail end of 2020 and all of 2021, the big theme was yield. Like, oh, don't just buy Bitcoin and have it go up five times. You can generate yield on it. You can do securities lending. And there were you know, high profile blowups that uh, were really, really bad uh, examples of risk management of you know, Celsius. You get 20% from, from this loan. Oh, uh, FTX, you get a, a certain yield on this. Terra Luna, it's 20%. You know, it's, there's, there's basically no risk, right? Um, you know, there was risk. And uh, what, what's the question I want to ask? Um, let's see. Yeah, where did the yield come from? <laughs> um, where, where, did, where did people think the yield come from? And where was the problem? Where did the yield actually come from? And the difference between those two is the problem. So, Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think there's like, there, there are two, two aspects to this, right? So there, are, um, there is kind of DeFi, which is mostly like, over or pretty much exclusively over collateralized lending. You you go to a lending protocol and you deposit some collateral and and you borrow you borrow stablecoin from it, for example, um, and that loan is liquidatable instantly. Like if 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 you if you default and um, currently at least like those uh, those DeFi loans generate like a fairly low rate. They're they're actually somewhat lower than than US dollar rates. But but and then there's also the 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 other form, which is like more CFI yields, which are things like Voyager, Celsius. They lend out your coins unsecured to like a market maker, um, and ho hope that the market maker returns them at some point. Um, didn't Celsius say that it was sec securitized? They said it was securities lending, securities, you know, collateralized, right? Yes. So in a sense, I think what happened and this is obviously like a huge oversimplification is like the lack of collateral 
in 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 these types of central centralized lending basically led to a huge credit bubble as and that like uh lenders could lend to the riskiest crypto hedge funds at 20% and then turn around and tell their depositors actually this is really safe um and yeah but sorry if, if let's say I, you know i don't want to say if i'm celsius cuz i'm not but if <laughs> celsius was lending bitcoin to some hedge fund that's really risky um and they're generating 20% on that yield aren't isn't the hedge fund giving them the money or they're they're literally not giving them the money they're just giving them the bitcoin and then saying oh we'll give you the money later yeah well if it's under collateralized you yeah, yeah you just yeah, assume yeah, they, okay yeah i guess i guess by definition yeah uh they they <laughs> they take the 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 coins and then um yeah tell they they say well we'll we'll pay back at 20% rate but that's 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 a very high rate but it's definitely not safe and and that's that was that's a big problem of a credit bubble is that you you misprice risk basically you you think something is is really safe when when it actually okay. isn't. <laughs> okay, so a lot of undercollateralized lending in centralized finance, CFI, a lot of what goes on in DeFi, decentralized finance, you said is overcollateralized. However, Kevin, I know from traditional finance that just because something is overcollateralized doesn't mean that it's risk free. As a matter of fact, a lot of the um, you know. Uh, uh, like CDOs, I forget what they stand for, uh, default, ob- default obligations, whatever, um, collateralized debt obligations, CDOs, uh, were over-collateralized by subprime mortgage. So for every $100 that they uh, uh, you know, borrowed, they were at, had 120 in assets. The only problem is the 120 in assets was actually worth five bucks. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but uh, couldn't it be a problem if, if you know, you, you, oh, oh my, my, I lent some, some uh, money and it's collateralized by, uh, you know, blank coin or whatever, um, and blank coin uh, falls dramatically, and you can't sell it. I mean, that that is a risk, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I mean, De- DeFi lending is definitely far from risk free. There, there is all kinds of smart contract risk, kind of liquidation risk, and um, yeah, all, all the the collateral is also very volatile since obviously most people are are using using token volatile tokens as collateral, and um, their prices can move very quickly. They might not be liquid. They're also as as we've seen this fall in uh, events like the the Mango hack. Um, these can be collateral values can be somewhat intentionally manipulated in order to extract value from a lending protocol. So all of these things are risks, and yeah, all of these things are um, uh, things that that Gauntlet studies and that and that we work on and we try to help our clients mitigate. So that is yeah, that is uh, very kind of relevant to my current work and 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 yeah, what we do as a company. Ah. <laughs> uh- so I'm going to ask a question that I don't know if it's the ultimate softball question or if it's the ultimate hardball question. Uh, but if if Gaunt, if uh, FTX had been a client of Gauntlet and you know had hired Gauntlet to help them with the risk management, what uh, what would you have uh, done to to help them out? Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I, I'm not sure. Well, I've kind of got to clarify we. Mainly, we work with DAOs, so like we 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 generally would not or not not offer a product for centralized exchanges, at least not currently. They are kind of structured very differently, and I don't know how we would even kind of got it. Although technically, there was an FTT DAO, and uh, people who were involved in the FTT DAO were called BFFs, uh, best friends of Sam Bankman Fried. <laughs> That's not a joke. You can look up FTT DAO. 
that's incredible. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's like obviously if 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 the very hypothetical case that this would happen is like, well, obviously the collateral is bad, right? Like you you um, and and this is something we we study carefully and we have like um, a lot of market data on this on like the liquidity of different types of collateral and we would have just told them from like basically walking in the door, yeah, this collateral is no good. <laughs> Um, hypothetical, obviously, that would never yeah. happen. <laughs> you, maybe you, you probably, probably uh, wouldn't have accepted them as a client. So, so what's the typical risk that a DAO has that you, what's the typical risk of a DAO has? And then what's the typical solution that you think, oh, if you do X, Y, Z, you can mitigate that risk? For lending protocols specifically, the biggest risk they're obviously dealing with is like insolvency risk. They have, um, they, they, they take collateral and they, they have rules to liquidate lo- loans that become under collateralized. But sometimes this, this doesn't work perfectly. Prices move too quickly. Liquidity is spotty and they, they, they can't, they can't liquidate the loan, um, quickly enough. Uh, so that's that's insolvency risk, and then this also comes comes around to the concept of kind of DAO treasury management. Is that DAOs when they when they 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 operate, they generate fees, um, and they 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 retain some some of these fees as reserves, and they they need some way to kind of manage manage these assets in order to have yeah insure uh, reserve funds or yeah some some kind of backstop to 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 protect against these insolvencies. <laughs> Right. And what I think you mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, is by reserve management is you have you have a ton of cryptocurrency assets that you're your native token and you need some way to sell that to have dollars to pay your expenses because, people, you know, the, 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 the building that you, you rent from, they don't accept blank coin. Uh, so you have to sell them and sell them in a way that doesn't crash the price, basically. And this goes way back, you know, if you people read. Right. Is that is that what you're talking about? Well, I, I mean, treasury management is just kind of a general optimization problem, I guess. It's like, um, okay. yeah, it's, it's like you, you might have certain needs, like, yeah, and, and some of them may be paying, like, costs in dollars, and you need to, you need to sell some of X token in order, in order to obtain dollars to pay those costs. And others, maybe you might cover, have to cover liabilities in tokens that your, like, protocol might incur at some point. Got it. Okay. Okay. So it's, it's, it's more, more complicated than that. Kevin, you know, we, we've been going a, lo- a long time. I want to be respectful of your time. So uh, what would you say was your key learning from FTX? Um, and, then, and then tell us about a certain, I don't know if Gauntlet has a white paper and, you know, tell us about that and we'll, we'll be happy to include it in the, in the uh, description. Um, so what, what was the, I guess, biggest learning from FTX? I mean, guess it's like... The market can be horribly wrong about things. I mean, like up until like the the very last minute uh, before they filed for bankruptcy, there were many many prominent people and like many people who I respect and still think are are very smart who were just wrong about it, and that's that's fine. And and that is that's just kind of part of the way markets are. And and um and yeah, I, I guess it's it's a lesson for everyone that like even even very unlikely things like this can can occur um yeah in in terms of um things to things to apply for gauntlet so i i am um my my 
um, job is is within marketing. So I, I I'm a content manager. I write most of our blog posts and materials. I I think the the, the one thing I, I will plug is check out our our, our um, website at um, walk.let.network. Uh, check out our, our blog on Medium. Check out our content. Um, yeah, and hope to hope to be doing a lot more of this and and bringing more interesting kind of interest rate stuff to DeFi as well. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you're a really interesting guy, Kevin. Uh, it's rare that uh, someone knows as much about TradFi or crypto. I mean, one of them, but to, to, to really know a lot about both is, is very rare. Uh, I'm very jealous. Kevin, can I plug your, your Twitter handle or is that a private information? Oh, no, please. Uh, yes. Okay, okay. People should, fo- people should follow your work uh, on Twitter at AnalystDC. And uh, your uh, uh, Substack is called dcchartbook.substack.com. So uh, most or all of the charts that, if you watch us on YouTube, you saw were from that, that Substack, which is excellent. Uh, Kevin, thanks so much. And I uh, hope you have a, a great rest of the, the rest of the year. Yeah, thanks so much, Jack.